Welcome to the Asia Chessboard, the podcast that examines geopolitical dynamics in Asia and takes an inside look at the making of grand strategy. I'm Andrew Schwartz at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. This week, Mike is joined by Ambassador James Moriarty, Chairman of the American Institute in Taiwan, to discuss his perspectives on political and security dynamics in the Taiwan Strait. Ambassador Moriarty considers how U.S. policy towards Taiwan has changed over his professional career and examines Beijing's intentions towards Taiwan. Finally, Mike and Ambassador Moriarty debate what Washington, Taipei, Tokyo, and others need to do to maintain stability in the Taiwan Strait. Welcome back to the Asia Chessboard after a brief summer hiatus where I had a chance to travel across this great country to Minnesota. And I'm happily back now in CSIS in our studio with a good friend and a senior figure in American policy towards the Indo-Pacific, Ambassador Jim Moriarty, chairman of the American Institute in Taiwan. Thanks, Jim, and, and great to see you. Maybe we should start. We're going to talk about Taiwan uh, U.S. policy towards Taiwan and how Taiwan figures in the geopolitics of the region beyond just U.S.-China relations. But maybe we should start by explaining, if you can, for us, AIT, the American Institute in Taiwan, and what your role is. The American Institute in Taiwan was set up in 1979 when we switched diplomatic recognition from Taiwan to the People's Republic of China. And so at that time, Congress in its wisdom say, hey, we need a legislative framework in which to continue our relationship with Taiwan. And the answer was to set up the American Institute in Taiwan under a legislative vehicle called the Taiwan Relations Act, which not only established AIT, but basically laid out the parameters of U.S. policy on Taiwan, pointing out that basically the stability of Taiwan was an important part of stability in the Western Pacific and threats to that stability would gravely threaten important U.S. interests. So it gave sort of a philosophical overview and then set up this, what is a non-governmental organization officially, funded by the State Department and other agencies to do the work of close partners. And that's what we are. We're a very close partner with Taiwan. We do more things with that island of 23 million people than just about any other place of 23 million people, with the exception of Australia. So, you had a long career in the Foreign Service, which we'll get to, but you are not a U.S. government official right now? That's right. Uh I am chairman of the board of the American Institute in Taiwan, very loosely defined. But over time, it has come to include not just chairing the board, making sure the finances all flow smoothly, but also having a protocol role of making sure that I am with important Taiwanese if they come to the U.S., Uh, But it's also included, because of that, much more of a substantive role, including traveling out to Taiwan regularly to meet with the highest officials and also meeting on a regular basis with any interagency force that wants to do, do business with Taiwan. And importantly, trying to make sure that there is a consensus within the U.S. government on important Taiwan related issues. And so, the mandate for AIT and for the board is not to necessarily, I gather, make policy, although some in our past have tried, but it is a really indispensable part of the engagement. And so policy comes up, but it's not the State Department. Is, is that the right way to think about it? That's a good way to look at it, or almost uh, what you and I and some iterations of the National Security Council are trying to do, which is you know trying to, to make sure that ducks are in a row and that Taiwan is not 
receiving conflicting information on very important issues. That that has only become more important as time has gone by. So your predecessor was Ray Burkhardt, who career foreign service officer, China hand ambassador in Vietnam, worked in the NSC, I guess back in Reagan. And people listening may know Jim, Jim and I worked together in the NSC. He had China, I had Japan, Korea, Australia. Then he became my boss briefly, uh, and then I replaced him. So um, we are not in any coup d'etat sense, but Jim went on to be ambassador in Nepal, to be clear. But let's get back to you. <laughs> um, you, uh, tell, I actually don't know the story. You're from Massachusetts, I know, but how would you end up in the foreign service and doing China? Well, I took fall term my senior year off and I of was of college uh, of college mm-hmm. and I was unloading I was unloading postal trucks in northern central Vermont and I had no idea what I wanted to do. I rode my bicycle up to College Dartmouth and I saw an advertisement for the Foreign Service, which made it clear that you would get free housing overseas and they teach you languages and the test was free. So I said, that makes sense. And then whenever it was given, I guess about two months later, I unloaded trucks all night, rode on my bike up to Dartmouth, which was in the midst of the second oil crisis. So the heat was off in the uh, rooms where we took the exam for four hours. And I can just remember getting colder and colder and wanting to eat and sleep. So it was uh, not a long planned thing. And you weren't studying Mandarin or Asia or anything? Uh, I had actually studied a reasonable amount of South Asia, but no, my focus at that point as a history major was on Western Europe, and I did a an undergraduate thesis on the French Revolution. So you learned Chinese at um, from the State Department, from uh, Foreign Service Institute. Completely, I did yeah. uh, the initial course for people who don't have Chinese is two years long, one year here in Arlington, and then one year in Taipei when I took the second year. I went off to Beijing at the worst of all possible times, immediately post Tiananmen. But afterwards, I went back for a third year of Chinese and a posting in Taipei. So this is a bit of a, a detour, but I'm curious, when you were at Dartmouth, were you aware of John Ledyard at all? So John Ledyard, Dartmouth student, drops out, joins the Royal Marines, goes to all over the Pacific with Captain Cook's expedition and is the guy who comes back and talks about America's future in the Pacific with Thomas Jefferson and other founding fathers. So huge figure, but I'm curious if Dartmouth students actually know who he is. I understand there's a little plaque where he cut down the tree to to paddle to Boston or whatever. Did, were you aware of him at all? Uh, there is a Ledyard boathouse uh, uh, on the Connecticut River, and I rode crew, so I am familiar with the uh, name Ledyard. I had no idea where it came from, and I'm wondering whether it's because somebody sailed all the way down to Connecticut into the Pacific and across over, over to Asia. I, gosh, it's an interesting story, and the name Ledyard is well known on campus. I mean, when I went to college, spring break was you know a couple hours to another college to drink, but I guess Dartmouth kids do stuff like join the Royal Marines and travel around the Pacific and <laughs> do, and, or in your case, join the Foreign Service. So you. Um, you, you were political minister in Beijing. I think that's when we first met. Then the NSC and ambassador in Nepal. That was your last uh, no. diplomatic post? or No, I was also, after that, ambassador in Bangladesh. Of course, Bangladesh, like uh, Harry Thomas. And you're still involved in Bangladesh work to some extent, right? Uh, no, for five years, I was working on a project to improve factory safety after the big factory collapse. And, uh, and that was a very successful project, but it came to a close. And I've... I haven't been working directly on Bangladesh. So most of your crew is on China and U.S.-China relations, the bulk of it. The last two ambassadorial posts were in South Asia, but and your key role in NSC was on China policy 
And the debate about Taiwan and China has changed a lot. You've been caught in the crossfire more than once. Um, where are we on the debate about Taiwan and cross-straits issues in, in Washington and the US compared to where we were in earlier points in your career? Wow. And do you feel vindicated? <laughs> I, uh, well, actually, Mike, we were earlier talking about my time at the NSC, which was 2001 to 2004. And if you will recall, and I'm sure you do recall very clearly, at that time, Chen Shui-bian was president in Taiwan. And there was legitimate concern here in Washington. And I think, you know, I will describe a consensus here that he was pushing things too hard, that he was being provocative. So I did go out a couple times, and this is in the in books by now, so I can actually mention it. But I, I did go out a couple times with President Bush's handwritten letters, just asking him to asking Chen Shui-bian to pull back. And unfortunately, uh, I'm not that good a diplomat, apparently, because Chen did not appear to hear what I said, and the president had to speak publicly calling for a restraint on both sides, but it was obviously aimed at Taiwan at that point. In contrast, I was my real substantive tour in Taiwan had been in the period 95 to 98. And you will recall that that was when the uh, Taiwanese held their first direct presidential election, free, fair, honest, fully participated. And meanwhile, the Chinese were very unhappy with that and started launching guided missiles around the ports in the north and the south. And at that point, the U.S. Uh, surged aircraft carriers into the region and things damped down. And so you've seen these ups and downs. And I Unfortunately, since the Chen Shui-bian government, initially the Chinese were very happy with the, uh, President Ma's administration. He was very careful not to antagonize and indeed uh, sought much closer economic ties with the mainland. So they were satisfied with the with way, the way things were going at that time. But China, meanwhile, was changing. China was changing from uh, Mao Zedong's we can wait 100 years for unification to happen with Taiwan to a country that was becoming much more assertive, much more confident in its powers. And now you have a, a President Xi Jinping who seems uh, unwilling to repeat patience with respect to Taiwan and instead uses a formulation that he needs to see progress on unification during his term as leader. So there's much more pressure. The hardest thing when you're doing diplomacy, and I from the NSBC experienced this in the six-party talks. The hardest thing is when the home team is divided and conflicting signals are being sent to your allies and partners and to the people you're negotiating with. And I, I think, and you'll agree, I'm sure, we were not speaking with one voice when you were going to Taipei. You had a letter from the president, but there were other parts of the US government saying, yeah, ignore that. We love uh, Taiwan. And Taiwan is also divided not just between the green camp and the blue camp, but within Chen Shui-bian's administration. There were people like Choi Ren, Tsai, I think, Tsai at the time. Tsai Ing-wen, very pragmatic. There were others who were pushing hard, mostly for domestic political reasons on independence. So when I succeeded you and I did that diplomacy, I had a much harder time because people on both sides realized these divisions were killing us. And my sense was it took President Bush publicly, basically chastising Chen Shui-bian in December 2003, which was weeks before I took over, so I didn't get blamed for it. <laughs> um, uh, but it kind of had to be done. 
it had to be done. It was painful, but it, both sides got a lesson from that. I think both sides today, the Tsai administration and the Biden administration know very, very well. I think there's more unity on this dialogue between Taipei and Washington in both capitals than there has probably ever been. Yeah, and I would say that. Uh, well, in contrast, of course, I did get blamed for. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thank, <laughs> for thanks for that, by the way. I <laughs> <laughs> and I did get held up in my first ambassadorial assignment because of that. But anyhow, <laughs> that too passed. Uh, you're right. I mean, I think that that's one of the major things that we have to do is make sure that we send a consistent message. And like I said, I've been doing a very intense schedule going around to not just security, but economic types uh, in state, USTR, in agriculture, just to make sure that we, we do have enough consensus so that you can look the Taiwanese in the eye and say, here, here is where we're going. And hopefully tell the Chinese that, look, you know, this is where we're going with respect to the cross-strait relationship. What, what year did you join the Foreign Service? Just to uh, date, date you a little bit. <laughs> 1975, right? So since 75, would you say this is the most consensus we've had on Taiwan in the U.S.? It seems that way to me, but I wow, that's an interesting don't have question. as long a history. Uh, probably. Yeah. Except maybe during the first part of the Ma years. Cause Just because nothing was happening, nothing right? Nothing was happening. Yeah. Taiwan wasn't an issue. Nobody yeah. was pushing anything too hard. Ma was assuring us that everything was under control. The Chinese were doing nothing particularly aggressive. And I think there actually was some interest in the intensity of economic outreach between the two sides. In retrospect, I think there's a lot of people who were saying, mm, yeah, maybe we should not have been, I don't want to say enthusiastic, but right. sort of uh, saying, well, this might not be a bad thing. Yeah. I think that's a growing consensus in both capitals. The divisions within Taipei and within Washington are inconvenient for diplomats. But in my view, really dangerous for security because it tempts Beijing to think it can drive wedges, that coercion will work. So I'm on a segue to how dangerous things are. In one sense, they're less dangerous because there's more unity in the US and I think in Taiwan. And that helps. That helps. That that internal unity is a matter of deterrence and dissuasion. It, it matters. But on the other hand, the pressure from Beijing is unprecedented. And there's a big debate about how dangerous the situation is, how much of a chance of war. How, how would you assess it yourself? Well, speaking as somebody who works for an NGO, uh, <laughs> I would say that one of the biggest dangers people don't talk about too much is it basically has shifted the system in, in China. I mentioned the fact that you know they've gotten much more confident in a lot of ways, much more assertive. But really, you now have one man making all the key decisions. I mean, you can look at their charts of government and party working groups and everything that is important comes almost directly under Xi Jinping. And that introduces a level of uncertainty that didn't exist when you had a genuine collective leadership where different voices could get heard. I was in Beijing when Chen Chi-chen was around. He actually understood the outside world very well and had a powerful voice within the leadership. I don't think anybody right now is in a position to say, well, you know, we think the policy we're following is mistaken once the policy has been decided. Do you think the policy, I mean, obviously there is far greater pressure on Taiwan from interference in, in the election and social media to bomber flights and fighters crossing the line in the strait they didn't used to cross and all of that. But do you think the policy has changed in Beijing? There's a bit of debate about that among the experts. The Taiwan white paper of, of Jiang Zemin put a sort of implicit deadline after the anti-secession law in 2005, which was bad, but the sort of good part about it was the Hu Jintao 
sort of relax the sense of a deadline. But it, it sure looks like to a lot of people, Xi Jinping's rhetoric is putting a deadline back on the sort of a, an urgency to unification and not just opposing independence, but an actual urgency to forcing unification. Where, where do you come out on that debate? Well, I would put it in terms of uh, Xi Jinping has made clear the urgency of progress. Okay. Mm -hmm. And right now, I don't think anybody in Beijing believes that genuinely peaceful tactics like the uh, 32 steps that they tried in terms of attracting Taiwanese investors, students, uh, young entrepreneurs, nobody thinks that's going to work. And now they have shifted to something called peaceful development unification of the motherland. I think that's... Uh, and anyhow, uh, if you look at the actions, what that means is basically, as we call them, gray zone tactics and coercion. It's not about winning hearts and minds. It's about putting enough pressure on the Taiwanese that they will agree to unify because they don't see any other road. And as your some of the comments you made earlier made clear, I also believe that there's no hope that that will work. Uh, basically, Hong Kong blew any hope of that out of the water. The people of Taiwan really don't want to become another Hong Kong. So in the future, when elections are fought, any winning candidate is going to have to be down the middle of saying, de jure independence is too dangerous and unification. Oh, that's that's an yeah. unthinkable future. So any candidate that gets elected is going to be elected on that platform. And the question is, after Tsai, who, by the way, I think the Thai analysts of Taiwan on the mainland genuinely understand that she's not going to do anything dangerous or crazy with respect to the independence issue. But after her, whoever comes in is going to come in with that baggage of being very careful during the election. Uh, and the Chinese are going to have to decide, okay, what do we do now? And the peaceful unification hasn't worked. Gray zone tactics haven't worked. What's what's left? And what we, the United States and Taiwan, have to do is make it so that when that question comes up, the answer isn't kinetic force against Taiwan. The answer is, hmm, we've got to find a way to stop digging ourselves a grave and figure out how to downplay this issue and go back to Mao's wisdom and say, we've got to kick this can down the road. That's what U.S. policy has to be all about. And frankly, I think there is a pretty broad consensus on that. Yeah. Do, do you worry that the Hong Kong example, while it killed any attraction for people on Taiwan for a one country, two systems model, that it might have emboldened people in Beijing that coercion works. Yeah, obviously, Hong Kong and Taiwan are very different. Beijing has purchase and, and leverage uh, over Hong Kong. It doesn't on Taiwan. But nevertheless, you worry, I worry, I'll tell you a little bit that Beijing concluded, hey, that worked out pretty well, actually. Yeah, but I would say that that's, well, okay, but they obviously didn't have to use kinetic force because of what Hong Kong was. But Good does point. it embolden them? Make, a, make it clear that assertiveness does not lead to overwhelming consequences, which people have been arguing. I think that yeah. <laughs> that is still the question is still open. But yeah, I, I do believe it. It increased the tendency towards assertiveness, and how that gets spelled out is yeah. I'm pretty sure we'll see gray zone tactics continuing. If the DPP wins the next election, they will only accelerate. If the KMT wins, maybe there will be a six or eight month honeymoon period. But then. 
you know, I, there's a law in Taiwan that says political talks with the mainland have to can only be started after three quarters of their legislature approves them. And if they lead to results, they have to have the legislature with a three-quarters majority agree to send them to a, a national referendum. And that's never going to happen. Yeah. And I worry that smart analysts of Taiwan on the mainland totally understand that. And so the question is, does that push them towards pointing this out and arguing for a pullback? You know, don't, don't let's go down this crazy road. Uh, you know, in a one-man system, that's hard to do. The one man has left the question open for now, but it's it's courageous to say we've got to be gentler with Taiwan. Right now. And Sai yeah. is a reasonable human being that we can talk with. Or if you're in Zhengnanghai, it's courageous to say let's be gentler with the US or Japan or Europe or Australia or anyone exactly. right now. Exactly. And particularly if policy has been clearly decided. Yeah. And Xi Jinping has tried to leave it open on Taiwan to some degree, you know. No definite deadline as far as the outside world knows or Taiwan knows, but clearly there has to be progress moving towards unification. So what does Taipei have to do to bend the trajectory towards what you describe as a, a better future where Beijing is backing off and is trying to use attraction rather than coercion? What does Taipei have to do? I, it seems to me Tsai has done one very important thing, which is move away from the unpredictability and the un and the flirtation with independence of Chen Shui-bian. She was there as the MAC head of mainland affairs. She saw it. You and I spent many, many hours with her explaining why that was not a good approach. I think she gets it. She's very steady. So that's one big step forward. But what else do you think Taipei has to do for its part to, to dissuade Beijing and bend this history? Well, you know, I, I think the uh, – unfortunately, I, I fear that we're at a stage where uh, deterrence is probably the most important thing that Taiwan can do. Anybody who knows the cross-trade issue always says, you know, talk if you can. Unfortunately, the mainland keeps on putting in preconditions in, in typical Chinese fashion where the precondition becomes the goal of – it is actually the goal of the talks. You know, they get the outcome as a precondition and then whatever you get during the talks themselves are just gravy. And, and specifically, you're talking about the so-called 1992 consensus? Yes, uh, uh, and the implication – that Tsai accept Beijing's interpretation of what – the two sides discussed in Singapore in 1992, right? Exactly. Which you'll never do. Which you'll never do. Yeah, and yeah. I can't imagine how you get to talks under the current law with that as a precondition. Yeah, again, it's a nation of laws. They got a law saying if you want political talks with Beijing, come to the legislature first. Yeah. And I can't picture three quarters of these legislators fearing for their political lives being part of a process that starts talks on unification with mainland China. That's instant death politically. So it's mostly about deterrence for the foreseeable future. Mostly about deterrence. And, uh, you know, we do have vigorous discussions with the Taiwanese. We think that the most important capabilities for the Taiwanese to develop are asymmetric capabilities. I think it was uh, Deputy Assistant Secretary Helvey who put it in terms of large numbers of small, survivable, and relatively inexpensive things. What does this mean? Well, one thing that's not totally cheap but actually wouldn't make a big difference and they are moving down this road is what they call coastal defense cruise missiles, mobile missiles loaded on a truck that can strike with a high degree of accuracy anything crossing the Taiwan Strait. They're moving on that. 
There was a question about sea mines, for example, unmanned underwater vehicles, basically a whole bunch of things. You know, we noticed that the legislature killed plans for micro-attack missile boats that would be guided by AI. That's unfortunate because that's pretty close to this sort of definition. Uh, you look at the second pillar that has to be developed according to, and here there seems to be consensus every place I go, is what is called defense in depth. You know, basically showing to a potential invader that it's not going to be easy. Even if you get boots on the ground, even if you get a beachhead, that's just the beginning. That using the unity of the populace, uh, irregular warfare skills, you can bog down an enemy and make it as difficult as heck to even get off that beachhead or advance from that airfield. And I tell you, if the decision maker is told, no matter what country we're talking about, that the invasion of Taiwan would lead to something that would look much worse than what the Americans encountered in Iraq or Afghanistan, I think any reasonable invader, would-be invader, would say, yeah, okay, when do I get control over this place? Well, sir, maybe three months, maybe six months. And that long pause, I hope, will convince whoever is planning this to say, this, this isn't worth it. So the Miles forces beat the KMT last time. Using by, those tactics. <laughs> by dividing them, picking off and bribing mm -hmm. uh, commanders, breaking their will to fight. So this is critical. Uh, in some ways, the Clausewitzian core of this whole conflict will be, will the Ty people on Taiwan have the will to resist and fight. Mm -hmm. My sense is more than before, but, but what do you think? Well, to be honest, this is something we talked to the Taiwanese about in, in the sense that to build that, people have to think they have a stake. And that's another argument for defense in depth, which isn't just kinetic. It's not just irregular warfare. It's making sure that people are trained in, you know, frankly, field medicine, but can play the role in keep, also keeping the community together understanding what's going to happen, uh, that's how you get buy-in, you know, is you develop the sense of urgency, but you also develop that sense of community. My father was in the Massachusetts National Guard for, gosh, I guess about 40 years after World War II. My brother was in the National Guard for 12 years after his term as a serving officer. And you develop a sense of camaraderie by getting at the local level and getting the local level bought into the French defense of the nation, but also the defense of their own locality. You know, looking at what the Baltics do or the yeah. uh, Swedes are doing now. It's, it's important to get everybody bought in. I think part of it is, to be honest, uh, there hasn't been enough of a sense of urgency on this issue among the civilian populace in Taiwan. What does the U.S. have to do to step up our Deterrence. Well, I if will. Deterrence, is deterrence also the core of what the U.S. has to do for the foreseeable future? Absolutely. So, and what will that have to involve? That's a multi track effort, and you're seeing it going on already. So, when you get Admiral Aquilino to come in yeah. here, uh, I'm sure he will talk to you about, you know, how do we shrink the Pacific? Yeah. <laughs> That's going to be real hard, but how do we make it so that our forces are not going to spend too much time crossing the Pacific that the 
you know, things have gotten out of hand. And they're talking about a whole thing, bunch of things, using pre-positioned stocks, whatever. But basically, it's important that we can get out here and it's important that we, you know, genuinely devote the resources needed to that question going forward. There is a shift, you know, I would say from my perspective that by far the biggest threat to the United States of America long term is the PRC going down its current path. So how do we address that? How do we try to bend it? One part is, you know, militarily we've got to show that we're there, we're ready and we, you know, we'll, we will do what we decide to do but we have, we'll have the capability to respond effectively and you've got to take that into account. Another thing talking about capabilities that's hugely important is the allies and partners and friends. Uh, you know a lot, a lot about a place that I'm trying to become fairly familiar with, but I think I'm seeing a shift in places like Japan, like Europe, that are beginning to reckon Korea, uh, yes. talking about peace and stability in the Taiwan Strait. Three years ago, that would have been unthinkable. Yeah, there are a lot of, if you're in Beijing tracking this, there are a lot of indicators that U.S. allies and partners are taking this more seriously. The, you know, Moon Jae-in mentioned Taiwan first time in a generation, at least, that a Korean president did that. The Japan debate's moving quickly. 74% of Japanese say Japan should play a role in polls. And, you know, Deputy Prime Minister also said, of course, we would help defend Taiwan, help the Americans defend Taiwan. It's vital, I think he said, for Japan. And then he had to walk it back. And he walked it back by saying, of course, diplomacy is better. That's not a lot. Of we a, all agree. That's not much of a walk back. <laughs> so, and even Europe, you're seeing a bit more attention to it. And I, that's got to be noticed in Beijing, don't you think? Yes, I do. But what I worry about is that the instinct is not to recalibrate policy in, in Beijing. Right. It seems to be to double down on policy. So that leads to the big question that people are debating since Richard Haas proposed it, which is do we need to get rid of so-called strategic ambiguity? Do we need to extend an ironclad security commitment to Taiwan like we have with Japan, Korea, or Australia in our formal security treaties? I think I know what you're going to say, but what's your take? Uh, that gets into what I call the threading the needle question. You know, how do you build as effective a deterrent as possible without forcing people in Beijing to say that, oh, we've got to move quicker. We've got to move now. You know, things are actually going to get harder for us in the future than they are right now. And I worry that dumping strategic ambiguity would do that in the sense that, you know, even if we declare that, you know, maybe you'll get the Chinese trying to convince themselves that, well, it's not serious. You know, the U.S. doesn't keep all its commitments. But more likely, you could build up pressure for something preemptive. And I will mention, you know, you, you talked about earl, earlier the uh, anti-secession law of 2005. In the beginning, there was clearly an attempt to say, well, that includes anything involving, and, and they will still say this, anything involving the basing of foreign troops, anything that looks like a foreign alliance. As a causes bella, as a cause as a for attack bella. by the PRC in their law. Yeah. Yeah, under their law. And... The ultimate leader would be facing that pressure. Yeah. Frankly, I don't think he's facing pressure that much on Taiwan. People are trying to guess what he's thinking. Mm. And so now I'm going beyond my – No, but the, I mean the other <laughs> aspect of this strategic ambiguity debate is we are making unprecedented progress with Japan and no ally is more important in complicating Chinese planning or allowing us to execute our plans. None. And we're making huge progress. I don't see Tokyo signing on to a strategic clarity policy. If we were to have a strategic clarity declaratory policy on Taiwan, we would 
stop the momentum we're making with Japan and in different ways, non-kinetic ways, if you will, non-military ways with Europe and others. So it would cost us, and I seems to me there are ways to show, it, you know, we used to call it, when I was in the Pentagon, strategic ambiguity and tactical clarity that we have the, the ability. But I think there are ways to have a kind of what I would call de facto strategic clarity. Oh, yeah. And absolutely. showing will without saying it. And, and, and if I, you say it, you complicate, you risk, as you point out, preemption from China, but you also make it harder for us to work with allies, which is, was your second pillar for how we strengthen deterrence. Very good point. You know, yeah. I, uh, I do think we have to be careful threading that needle, but we have to do it in such a way that our intent is possible. I mean, I love the Taiwan Relations Act. It gives me a job, but basically <laughs> it also makes it clear that, you know, under U.S. law, this is hugely important. And I think China has for years tried to convince itself that, well, you know, the Americans would never shed blood, you know, over Taiwan. You know, Taiwan is uh, much more important to us than to them. That argument is getting tougher and tougher to make, frankly. You know, the more we do that doesn't recognize Taiwan as a diplomatic uh, relation, but the more we can do that builds that relationship the more skin we have in the game in various ways that don't force Zhongnanhai to say we've got to attack now because things are going to get tougher. And and frankly, that's that's a fairly high bar. There's a lot of things we could do. Talking about the Japanese, you're right. I mean, they would love, I think, to begin planning on what we and they should be thinking about doing if Beijing does something horrible. Uh, and, you know, under the current framework, the Chinese are going to begin thinking, yeah, that's happening and that's fine. But if they begin to think, well, you know, the Japanese are going to be stationing uh, frigates in uh, Geelong because it's right next to Okinawa, uh, then we might have a real problem Yeah, that's avoidable and, and on something that doesn't really add much to either the capability or the deterrence from the capability. In your role, you may have a better visibility than anyone on where the zeitgeist is on this by which I mean whether all this is worth it, the risk to the United States. We, we did a survey at CSIS of mm -hmm. elites on how much risk we should take. It's on our website, but Australia was – people are willing to take a lot of risk to defend Australia, a lot for Japan and Korea, but not far behind was Taiwan. So there are a lot of indicators, including congressional legislation, which is very bipartisan and broad, that people get it. But in your – you know, engagement with Congress, with civil society groups and academics and business and stuff. Are, are there pockets? You sometimes hear the endless war crowd saying, why do we want to defend Taiwan? But, you know, the Quincy Institute, but it's a sort of small minority giving that view. Do, but do you encounter pockets of that still? Uh, not too much. Not, yeah. not in the people I speak with regularly. I mean, occasionally I have dinner with somebody who kind of raises that question and it's clear that it's out there. You know, there is a question of, why would we be willing to shed blood, risk World War III over an island that's 8,000 miles away? And, you know, China seems to think it's theirs and, you know, we've never said it's not theirs. And so why do we yeah. – <laughs> why under those conditions? Except for the most – the truest believers that any use of U.S. force is unacceptable post-Afghanistan, post-Iraq, post-Vietnam, post-World War II, post-World War I, uh, except for those genuine believers, I find most of them, if they're willing to listen, will begin to hear. And I think a lot of people, when I hear things like that, 
they don't know much about China. They don't know much about the way China has evolved. They don't know much about the threat that China is presenting to things just like technology. I know now a lot of people have heard about cyber attacks who probably two weeks ago had never even thought about, about it to any degree. And following on the the nasty cyber attacks, people are sticking up and saying, you know, government of China does that? Yeah. So I, I think part of it is just people not having realized that things have changed quite a bit and that there has to be as effective a response as possible or the U.S. and its democratic friends and partners are going to be in a very rough place within a decade. So, Jim, thanks for your service and thanks for joining us in a really illuminating picture of where we are in cross-straits issues in U.S. strategy towards uh, Taiwan and China. I think a lot of people will find this interesting and uh, learn a lot from it. So, thank you. Well, thank you, Mike. And I'm going to have to admit that I had my views on American interests in Far East Asia definitely shaped by your book. I mean, I inherently, uh, for those uninformed, it's not by providence alone. I'm sure Mike will give you a free copy. Just <laughs> yeah. use my name and send him an email. But the necessity for U.S.-Asia policy to make sure that you could get through places like Taiwan, that that first island chain was a gate in uh, to a the Asian continent, that we could actually move through there when we needed to, where we needed to, and sort of putting that to together and sort of realizing that if there was ever a Taiwan under the control of the People's Liberation Army, the U.S. position in the Western Pacific will be totally at risk. I, th that kind of... I like explaining that to people. Yeah. And the ones who are strategic thinkers begin to scratch their head and say, oh. Geography still matters. Geography still matters. Thanks for having me on the show, and I really enjoyed doing it. Excellent. Thanks, Jim. Thanks for listening. For more on strategy and the Asia program's work, visit the CSIS website at csis.org and click on the Asia program page.